so nice. <laughs> Thank you, JT. It really wouldn't be a good thing for me to start the night off crying, would it be? So I'll hold that back. But JT has really been a blessing in my life. And for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to get to know him, please do. He's really a strong man of God and is there for you guys. Um, as well as myself, I'm there for the ladies um, to help you through things in life and to help you to get to know God and to know his face more. As, um, as we open this night, some of you may not know me. My name is Joanne Driscoll, and I've been coming to this ministry for two years. I'm 25 years old, um, and I came to this ministry really hurting and at a, a tough stage in life, and God has really touched me here um, and blessed me in more ways than I can imagine. Before we dive into the word tonight, would you bow your heads with me and we'll open in a word of prayer. Lord, I, I welcome you to speak tonight. God, we're your servants and we're willing to listen. Lord, we're willing to change. God, I ask that you would touch our hearts, touch my heart, Lord. God, may my heart beat in rhythm with yours. Lord, may I be able to outpour love the way that your heart does. God, transform us tonight. Lord, we leave all our cares at your feet, and we, we ask that you would help us to just focus in, Lord, on what you want to speak to each one of us individually tonight. God, this is your time, and we welcome you here in this room. In your precious Son's mighty name, Jesus Christ. Amen. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who shall be against us? He did not spare his only son, but he gave him up for us. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has called? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, but more than that, he was raised to life, and he's at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. What then shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and he set a seal of ownership on us. He put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 through 22. Since then, you have been raised with Christ and God. So set your heart on things above, where God is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. But now your life, it is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Psalm 44, 21 says that God knows the secrets of our heart. Psalm 55, 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19 says, For this reason I kneel before the Father in heaven, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power in your spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, then being rooted and established in this love, along with all the saints, will be able to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses all knowledge and to be able to live in the measure of the fullness of God. Fire, scripture has a whole lot to say about matters of the heart. As we begin tonight, I realized when studying scripture that the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Scripture talks about the heart over and over and over again. And sometimes it's hard to differentiate. It talks about the heart in three different manners or three different manifestations. It talks about the physical heart, talks about the spiritual heart, and the emotional heart. We're going to look at all three aspects tonight and sometimes where Scripture means what in regards to the heart. Tonight we're going to look at um, a character in Scripture When I was studying this scripture, I realized that I had a lot of questions about the heart. You know, now that a lot of us are believers, and maybe you've known Christ for a long time, maybe you're a new believer, maybe you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, but I bet you've asked this question, because I have. I've asked this question that, what should my heart look like? I I am a believer in Christ, and so the question that is, well, if my heart is supposed to follow God, what does that actually mean? It's kind of a confusing manner sometimes. Um, You know, we see over and over and we sing songs that what is inside, what the heart looks like inside, comes out. And we see that in life. I don't know about you, but then I've asked myself, well, if I have a poor attitude or if I can't control my mouth, or if I'm exhibiting anger, or um, uh, anything negative that you can think of, anything that maybe you have questioned yourself with, then I ask myself, does this mean that my heart is bad? Do I have a bad heart? And then I ask, could I change? And if I change, what does that look like? And how do I change? What is all this stuff about the heart in Scripture? And what is the heart supposed to look like? One character that you're probably familiar with, his name is Paul. He's found in the New Testament. He's had a drastic and dramatic change from the inside out. And it's in regards to his heart. Tonight we're going to look at a scripture. If you brought your Bibles with you, could you turn to Acts chapter 9? And I've asked a team of fire members to help in reading this, just to deliver it in a different way. There's four characters in the scripture. Um, And so this way you'll be able to understand a little bit better who's reading what and who's speaking when. And I will come up after they read. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, 
Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. Go to the house of Judas on Straight, Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Well, reading through this passage... We typically, you've probably often heard it, the big idea. What is the big idea? And preachers will use that phrase. Every time you read through a passage in Scripture, the question you want to ask yourself is, why is this passage in the Word of God? And that's the big idea out of it. And that's the reason um, behind a lot of sermons most of the time. You'll hear, oh, the big idea is this, and here's point one, two, three. That's where it comes from. So in your own study... Get into that practice of asking yourself, why is this passage in the Word of God? What does it mean? I think that the big idea out of this passage that we're reading tonight is this. That an encounter with the Lord changes the heart from the inside out. Let me repeat that. An encounter with the Lord changes the heart from the inside out. To help you remember tonight as we go through, there are three points. Each point begins with the letter P as in Paul. So God willing, later in the week, you should be able to reference back to a friend and say these are the three points, and hopefully the word will be able to reside in you a little bit this week. So that should hopefully make it easy for you. I talked about the three different ways that hearts, uh, the word heart is mentioned in Scripture. We're going to see that a little bit. When we look at Paul, we want to look at, well, how does his heart change? To get some of these answers to our questions, and, and what does that mean for Paul? What happened in this experience for him? And his change happens in three different ways that we'll be able to see throughout that passage. Number one, it's personally provided for Paul. Number two, it's a process. And number three, there is proof. Okay, so number one, let's begin with. The change of heart is personally provided for Paul. It's also personally provided for us. And we're going to prove that by using scripture. 
It was personal for Paul. As you heard it read, no one else around knew what was happening. They saw the light, but they didn't hear or understand this conversation that was going on. And in many ways, God talks to us that way and in ways that we understand. But somebody sitting next to you may not understand it or see it the same way. It's very personal when God speaks to us and touches our heart. One thing I love here in the book of Acts is how atypical the people are that God uses. If you know anything about Paul, it's kind of a surprising story. Paul, he persecuted a lot of the Christians. So prior to this passage that we read, he's actually participated in a stoning. He stoned a person to death. Now, a stoning is just what it sounds like. You're picking up a stone and you're throwing it at somebody. But you're throwing it so violently and so many times that it kills a person. Now, what to remember here is that this isn't like a quick snap of anger where he quickly snaps and kills somebody. This is a very meditated over and over, picking up a stone, seeing that he hurt somebody, and picking up another stone. This is the man that we're dealing with on this road to Damascus. He's very angry. Um, He's full of violence. And he did this to Stephen, but Scripture alludes that he probably did this to multiple other people as well. There probably were reasons that Paul had all this anger built up in his life. We don't know everything about Paul's past, um, but I'm sure there are reasons that, he's this, that he is able to have this much anger to commit murder in this fashion. Like I said, he's violent. He was really one of the worst offenders and really had the worst past. I want to pause at this point because I realize that there's people here who are probably sitting back and saying, you have no idea what kind of past I have. Or maybe you're not saying that. Maybe, maybe you're saying that, you know, I like to come to fire. It's wonderful to come here. I really enjoy the fellowship, the music. But you don't know what I've done. Or maybe... Maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, you don't know what's been done to me. And you're right. I don't. But scripture says that God is no respecter of persons. And what this means is that if God can meet and have an encounter with somebody like Paul, somebody who had a a really rough past, then God can and will meet with us and change us in the same way that he did with Paul. I think so many times we think that God can. God can heal me. God can change me. But we don't believe that he will. That scripture, he is no respecter of persons, means not only that he can, but that he will. If you think of any other uh, scriptural person, you think of Abraham. Abraham um, didn't trust in God's promise, and he went off and had a child in his own way with a maidservant. Think through David. David was an adulterer. For some of you who are probably in the victimized role in life, think through the story of Tamar. She was raped by a family member. There are things that, some things we've had control over in our past, and there are things that many of you have not had control over. And I am so sorry for those of you who are still living with the memories of things that have gone on in the past. 
what I think happens is sometimes we then take the next step of acknowledging that past and we have fear. This fear of maybe what God can do with us if we let go of some of that. This fear of what is life going to look like? Is God going to make me make all of these changes? And I don't know that I'm ready to do that. We live with fear. Fear, the word fear, F-E-A-R. Think of it this way. I heard this definition and it just totally stuck with me for years. It's false evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing real. Uh, just a, a light story that, that really um, displays this. My brother's dog, Jack, you've heard stories already about him. I take care of him once in a while, and he is horribly afraid of the vacuum cleaner. For some reason, he thinks this is a real being. Now, I can stand there and watch and be like, Jack, it's not going to go after you. But he is terrified of it. He barks at it. He thinks it's this live being because it moves, because it has light, because it's tall. In his mind, he thinks that that's real. Now, from the outside, I can say, Jack, that's not real. I know that you're safe. But he doesn't understand that. That's a light way of looking through fear. But I think a lot of times we bring this false evidence before God. And we say, well, God, you couldn't use me because of this, that, and the other. Now, it's false even though sometimes it's real stuff. Let me explain that. Because some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, no, 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 this isn't false. I didn't make this up. This really happened. You're right. It did really happen. But it's like we're bringing the wrong material, the wrong evidence, to the wrong court trial. Think of it that way. Imagine Paul standing before God saying, God, I mean, you can't use, you don't want me. You don't want me for your kingdom. I've, I've murdered Christians. I've I've made a joke of your name. What could you do? Nobody's going to listen to me. And he could have gone right down the list. And I can almost picture God being like, yeah. So what does that have to do with why I love you and I'm calling you to me? We think that it's very valid reasons, but God sees them as false evidence. God wants to use us. Now, I'm not downgrading or demeaning anything that you have gone through. I know that many of you have gone through a really hard journey in life. But I want you to know tonight that it does not define you. Your past does not dictate your future. You don't have to believe that for it to be true. It just is what it is. It does not define you. And I want you tonight, at this moment, if you're sitting there getting kind of nervous because there's stuff that's coming in your mind that you're thinking through, I want you to silence that. Silence every voice that tells you that you'll never be good enough. Silence every voice that tells you you don't look good enough or that you're not successful enough. Silence every voice that has ever said to you that you'll never make it. Silence every voice that reminds you of that past mistake. Silence every voice that says to you that you will never change. In the name of Jesus Christ, silence that. Scripture says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old is gone, and the new has come. See, the amazing thing about the heart is that once it is injured, we only have two options. One, we get a heart transplant. We need a new heart. 
or two, we have surgery to repair that heart. But we cannot go back to the heart that we once had. That is physically impossible. Once the heart has been injured, we have two options. We have a transplant or we have a surgery to repair. But we cannot go back to that old heart. I think so many of us have taken hold of, of the new heart that God has offered and we're like standing here and there's the old life and here's the new and we stand right here. And we're saved and we love God, but step into that new heart. We walk around with these broken, injured hearts. Let God give you that new heart tonight. Let God repair those wounds. Let God make you whole. When studying for tonight, I'm a little nerdy. I studied the actual heart, the actual anatomy of the physical heart. And I found some things really interesting. You know, the heart is, it's this very strong organ, yet it's very delicate. I'm going to read through some actual biology for a few moments, so bear with me. But in order to understand why sudden death can happen, it helps to understand how the heart works. The heart is a specialized muscle. It contracts regularly and continuously, pumping blood to the body and the lungs. And this pumping action is caused by a flow of electricity through the heart. It repeats itself in a cycle. If this electrical activity is disrupted, for example, by a disturbance in the heart's rhythm, this is known as an arrhythmia. That can affect the ability to pump properly. The electrical activity of the heart can be de detected by doing an electrocardiogram. We probably have heard of this as an EKG. Most sudden deaths are due to a heart condition and then are called sudden cardiac death. Up to 95 in every 100 cardiac deaths are due to disease that causes abnormality of the structure of the heart. Now catch this. The actual mechanism of death is most commonly a disturbance of the heart's rhythm. It's known as a ventricular arrhythmia, a disturbance in the heart rhythm in the ventricles, or ventricular tachycardia, a rapid heart rate in the ventricles. This can disrupt the ability of the ventricles to pump blood effectively to the body and can cause all loss of blood pressure. That's known as cardiac arrest. If this problem's not resolved in two minutes, and if no one's available to begin resuscitation, the brain and the heart then become significantly damaged, and death follows quickly. So can you imagine in the physical heart that once the beat or the rhythm of the heart is disturbed, that a change is needed? It can't go back to that regular beat that it used to have. What disrupts the beat? of your heart. Now we're talking on the emotional, spiritual level. What disrupts your heart? Number one, this was personally provided for. And number two, it's a process. 
Paul's case, the only option was a transplant surgery, and there was only one surgeon that could do this kind of surgery, and that was the Lord himself. If you remember back to the scripture that was read, it was a process for the scales to come off of Paul's eyes. For three days, he was blind. He did not know what he was being called to. This is the moment when we know that we know that we know that we know that we knew that we've made some mistakes, that there are some regrets that we have, that we may have for the rest of our lives. This is the point when we know something's got to change, that we can't keep doing or that we shouldn't keep doing what we've always done. We need to run away from situations and setups that cause us to fail. For example, if you struggle with alcohol addiction, if liquor is something that really tempts you, then don't walk into a bar. If you struggle with chocolate, don't go into a candy store. You know, it's kind of a simple concept, yet I know personally we don't always follow it. And name your thing that you struggle with, if it's codependency, if it's a form of uh, drug use, if it's, if it's low self-esteem. Don't put yourself in situations where you know you're going to struggle with that. That's hard. It's a lot easier said than done. This is the moment where Paul is before the Lord, he's met with the Lord, and he is just breaking. There's not much provided in scripture about these three days. Many theologians have different opinions. But what I think is key to notice is that in the dark hours, the dark night hours, that this is where the Lord does the heart surgery. If you think about your own life, it makes a lot of sense. I know for me, a lot of the times I hear from the Lord or I'm convicted of something, it's late at night. It's when I'm alone before the Lord. And I think that that sometimes just even thinking through it gives some of us an uncomfortable feeling. Because I think who we are when nobody else is around is who we are. I mean, we, we're faced with the truth of everything that we've done, and we know it. And I think what makes us so uncomfortable, and sometimes we have a hard time having, you know, a series of time that's alone or quiet or not with other friends, because I think we understand the concept that God also knows who we are. And that makes us really uncomfortable. Could be that we know who we are when we're alone, and we know that God knows that, and that scares us. Maybe we're not proud of whom we are when no one else is around when no one else is watching. And if that is you tonight, allow the Lord to do surgery. Change your heart. I mean, who do we think we're kidding sometimes? We can, we can hide from our friends, from our confidants, from our family members, but this is the creator of the universe. Just tell him what he already knows. Be real. Go through those dark hours of the night. He already knows and sees what we're so afraid to confess to him. Guess what? Surgery is painful. I don't know why sometimes we think that, 
that going through something like that is going to be easy. It's painful. Surgery physically is painful. It's emotionally painful, and it's spiritually painful. These dark hours, they're the, the places where we need to confess before the Lord, where we cry. I know men, you can cry. Where we own up to things. Where we decide that we're going to walk as the Lord has called us to walk. You know, the awesome thing about these dark nights is that this is also where the Lord begins to stitch us up. And this is also where the Lord begins to, to get us strong. And we begin to recover. And we begin to heal. See, if the heart has been transplanted, then, then the body becomes new and whole. And if it has reparative surgery, then the body becomes new and whole as well. There's a day of healing. And I pray that tonight is that day of healing for many of you who have been in the dark night. I think sometimes we spend years in this dark night. and We don't let the surgery end. And we go through the same process of looking back and looking at things that we've done. Well, we need to let it go and move forward with Christ. The great thing is that surgery does not last forever. And I'd like to share for a few moments about a surgery I have had on my heart. And I don't mean that figuratively. I have actually physically had a surgery on my heart. Some of you know from the last time I spoke that I had a battle with Lyme disease. And with Lyme disease, the way you treat it is you get antibiotics. The antibiotics they had given me were not working. They worked only so much. They got me only so much stronger, only so much better. But I was not completely whole. See, it was the right medicine, but it was too low of a dose. It was the right medicine, but too low of a dose. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to give me antibiotics through an IV every day. And the way to do that, they had to have heart surgery. They had to put what's called a PICC line in. PICC line is P-I-C-C. It's peripherally inserted central catheter. Basically, it's a little tube that would go in my vein, in my left arm, into a chamber above my heart. Then as the antibiotics went through this tube, the, the heart would then pump the antibiotics through those ventricles that we saw on the screen to the rest of the parts of my body, and that would kill the bacteria and the thing that was making my body not whole. This was a last option. This was not an easy thing. It was after two years of treatment. It's not something they do right, right up front. Um, and to be honest with you, it was a horrible surgery. It was very painful. See, the thing about this surgery, it was the bizarrest experience of my life. But they don't put you under because it's your heart. And they want to be able to communicate back and forth with you. So they keep you wide awake. So wide awake, I walk into the surgery room, the operating room. And wide awake, I lay down on the operating table. And wide awake, they show you on, a, they do an ultrasound and I'm watching the procedure on the screen in front of me. <laughs> wide awake, they seal everything up over here. And wide awake, I stand up off the operating table, 
get changed, and walk out into the lobby. And I completely proceed to pass out and faint in the lobby of the hospital. <laughs> See, fainting is the body's natural reaction to trauma. It's, it's a phenomenon to doctors themselves. I know we have a doctor in the crowd, and it's one of those things that the best way they explain it is that the body has to shut down in order to restart. It's like turning your computer off and on, and that's really all that happens. <laughs> Go out cold, and then you get up. But the process of this was very painful. And the fainting, it was like my body was crying out. My body was saying, this is enough. This is too hard. This is too traumatic. And that's what it feels like in these dark hours of the night when the Lord is doing surgery. Now I'm I'm jumping back to figuratively speaking here. When the Lord is working through stuff with us, there are moments like that where we're going, this is too hard. To face past traumatic events, to psychoanalyze our lives and to figure out why we are the way we are, it's very difficult. See, the surgery was risky and it was painful, but right away I began to get better. I had had two years of really being very ill. And right away, I began a health spurt that led to my healing. It was progressive. It took time after that. But that jump-started the healing. How do we continue in life not going into those old ways of life unless we figure out why we are the way we are? And we've got to figure out why do we like liquor if that's our struggle. If it's the candy thing, and I make light of that, but I'm a gal. It's hard sometimes. I know. Well, we've got to figure out, are there things behind that sometimes? You know, emotional eating is not a good thing. We make light of a lot of things, and, and we make heavy of some other things. But before God's eyes, if anything is outweighing our relationship with the Lord, then we need to reevaluate that and recheck that. If we continue to have a poor attitude, maybe at work, then why? What is behind that? If we're always in conflict with one another or with somebody, why? If we feel or we've heard once or twice that we don't handle conflict the best or that maybe we've got a short fuse, why? Why do we respond that way? And those are hard things to dig up and figure out why. It's very painful. And I jump back to just the simple statement I opened with, just let surgery be surgery. Don't expect it to be anything different. It's painful. If we're here tonight, we're going through this Identity in Christ series, and if you realize that maybe your identity is not fully um, one that grasps that we're made in the image of God, then question why. What is stopping that from being your whole image and your whole identity? The surgery is personal and it's provided to us. It's a process. And thirdly, there is proof. When we look at Paul's life, there was proof. Just like for me, immediately, physically, I felt much better after I had this surgery. 
course, I wanted it out that same day. It was so painful. I remember saying to my family, take me back. Let's get it taken out. I don't like this. This is horrible. It's very uncomfortable. And it is very uncomfortable. And Paul went through some very uncomfortable stuff to own up to killing people, to own up to his past ways. That's a process. And there's proof. After three days, sight was restored to Paul. And scripture shows, if you go back to that passage, that his life immediately was changed. Right away, he began preaching and teaching. This was the same word that just three days. So think about that. Just on Monday. It's the same word that he was persecuting. There's the only proof sometimes we can see is time. Because, of course, when Paul was going around and sharing the word, of course, many people doubted him. And he probably knew that that was going to happen. We know that it took him three days to come out of this dark night. But what you don't see in this passage, and scholars do know, is that it took somewhere between three and nine years for him to really be discipled and to really learn the word of God and to become mature in the faith. A lot of times we think, why am I not further along in the faith? I mean, I gave my heart to God a year ago. That's wonderful, but it takes time to grow and it takes time to mature. And we're going to make mistakes again. We need to have a mentor over us that we're fully accountable to. Fully. Everything is laid bare before that person. And that's a choice that you make or you don't make. It is your choice. God gives us free will there. But that mentor will help you to be able to make it to the point of the three years, of seven years, of nine years. And then Paul was sent out on the missions field. He was strong enough. He had proved himself to people around him that people actually prayed over him and blessed his ministry and sent him out as supporters behind him. He no longer was defined by his past. He had proved himself by his actions. See, Scripture says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul illustrates that his heart is new, not just by what he says, but by what he does. And he does this consistently for years and years to come. He does not go back. He doesn't compromise. He doesn't look back. He marches forward. Yes, we trip. Yes, we have goof-ups. But he keeps marching forward. This can be the test for us. See, Paul continued in this light for years to come. And his new heart brought new life. So remember at the beginning we asked that question of how do I know that I'm changed? Well, are you bringing new life? Paul now brought Jesus Christ into other people's lives. As I said earlier, the big idea that an encounter with the Lord changes the heart from the inside out. Paul's heart was now producing life. And that can be our check. I mean, spiritually, other people were getting saved, but also Paul was producing fruit. He was producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He was producing things that bring life, not things that bring death. And that I mean in the figurative, spiritual um, manner of the heart. The heart truly is 
the source of our physical lives. The heart is the source of our spiritual lives and of our emotional lives. I think the question we need to ask ourselves is what kind of source does our life have? I challenge you tonight, check what or who is at the center of the source. Are we standing here in this middle point of saying Christ has entered the source, he's in my heart, but so are all of these past things that I'm dealing with, that I'm working through. And maybe the past things take up three quarters of the heart and we leave a quarter of the heart there for God. Once the heart is healthy and the source of the heart is healthy, it beats healthy. Nothing interrupts its rhythm. You know, things come in life. Hard things come. Like I said, there may be moments where we trip again. We are humans and we are prone to stumble. We're sinful beings. But that heart continues to beat in rhythm. It doesn't get all out of whack and go way back to the past and, and, and really go through a major night thing again. Instead, it's steadier. And I pray that your heart would absolutely bleed through the veins the kind of love that Jesus Christ displays for us. So that it's physically who you are. Your heart is a source of life. We know that. Basic anatomy shows us that without a heart, we don't have life. This is a really huge part of our identity in Christ and to check our hearts this evening. I pray that we bleed love. I pray that we are love. I'm so grateful that God is personal with us, that he goes through the process with us. He doesn't leave you there in the dark night. And that he provides proof that he resides in you. And that you can have confidence with. Scripture says that he bestows glory upon our heads and he enables us to walk with our heads held high. You are not defined by anything that was one minute ago or prior. You are defined as a child of Christ. And God's heart is one that flows with love. So let your heart flow with love in all areas and produce life. Tonight, in closing, I'm going to show a video. And this video is um, a song that's a pop song. A lot of you will probably be familiar with it. It's on the radios. And I pray that you make it a prayer of your heart. And ask yourself one of these two things while we pray in our own seats. It's your moment with the Lord. One, I pray that you would ask the Lord to transplant your heart, to give you a new heart. You know if that's you tonight. Pray that he would reside in your heart. Confess to him the ways that you have lived and ask him to take residency in you and to give you a new heart. Or pray that God would repair your heart, that he would make your heart whole, that you would be able to walk with your head held high, that you would be healed and complete. You see, I think we need to all ask the Lord to repair our hearts. Because I think there's only one human who's gotten that right, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, when he went up on that cross and he died for all of us, 
in this room, at that moment, his life, his veins, and his heart, they were bleeding love. I want to bleed that kind of love. And I pray that that's your prayer tonight. I pray that you bleed that kind of love where you work in your families. Everybody that you walk by knows the love of Jesus Christ. At the end of this video, Pastor JT will come up and close us out. God bless you.